From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Levels of atmospheric CO2 are now higher than they've been in perhaps millions of years, changing the climate and reducing nutrition in major food crops. Rising concentrations of carbon dioxide really threaten global human nutrition, significantly reducing the levels of important nutrients for human health. We lose about 63 million life years annually from nutrient deficiencies today. Also, scientists are starting to understand the importance of sound for sea creatures and the strange ways some detect noises in the ocean. The best way to kind of think about how squid detect sound is to kind of think about fruit in jello. The squid being the fruit and the jello being the water column. And how squid detect sound is that the, essentially the sound wave literally vibrates them or moves them back and forth. The noisy ocean and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A study published in the journal Nature finds that staple foods can lose key nutrients when they're grown in air increasingly rich in carbon dioxide. Researchers cultivated 41 different varieties of these crops on three continents to discover how they might be affected by the expected increase of CO2 in coming decades. Samuel Myers is a physician and research scientist in the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. He led the study and joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So what crops did you look at for this study and and why did you choose them? Well, we looked at a fairly wide variety of crops that included rice, wheat, soybeans, maize or corn, field peas, and sorghum. Uh, and we chose them because they you know, really represent a fairly broad slice of different plant functional groups that are central to human nutrition around the world. It's what a lot of people eat, in other words. Yeah. Now, you grew these study crops in an environment that had uh, elevated levels of CO2, carbon dioxide. How much CO2 are we talking about, and how did you do this? Well, so the levels that we're talking about are 550 parts per million, and that's essentially where the world is going to be by about 2050. There's very little debate about that. The way we did it was by using what's called FACE methodology, which stands for free air carbon dioxide enrichment. Essentially, what you have is open field conditions where it looks like any other agricultural field, except there's a ring of carbon dioxide emitting jets. And in the center of the ring is a sensor, which tells you the wind direction as well as the carbon dioxide concentration. And when the CO2 falls below your prescribed level, the upwind emitters release some additional carbon dioxide. So what were your findings? How did these food crops stack up when they were grown in this high carbon dioxide environment? So what we found is that rising concentrations of carbon dioxide really threaten global human nutrition by significantly reducing the levels of important nutrients for human health in all of these crops. Uh, In particular, we found significant reductions in zinc, iron, and protein in C3 crops, which are grains like rice and wheat. And we found significant reductions in zinc and iron, but smaller reductions in protein in the C3 legumes like soybeans and field peas. How significant is that reduction in zinc, iron, and protein? 
statistically, it was very highly significant. And in public health terms, uh, I think it's also very significant. We know that there are roughly 2 billion people around the world who are suffering from zinc and iron deficiencies today. Uh, without adequate zinc, our immune systems don't function appropriately. And so we get an increase really in child mortality from diseases like pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, measles, and other infectious diseases. For iron deficiency, it's more complex. So we experience iron deficiency anemia. The risk of maternal mortality rises quite sharply. And there also are impacts on things like IQ and work productivity. And when you combine all of those different kinds of effects for both iron and zinc deficiency together, uh, it's estimated that we lose about 63 million life years annually from those to nutrient deficiencies today. How about different uh, cultivars that uh, might be able to, to do better in a high carbon dioxide environment? We did actually look at 18 different rice cultivars, and we found that, in fact, there were some rice cultivars that were more impacted by rising CO2 than others. And it may be possible to actually breed rice cultivars for reduced uh, sensitivity to carbon dioxide and conceivably other crops as well. Now, what about the discussions that carbon dioxide acts as something like a fertilizer for plants, causing them to grow bigger, stronger, faster? Uh, what does your research say about those views? There is data that suggests that there's a small fertilization effect of carbon dioxide that can increase yields, although in the context of adequate irrigation, there's really not that much of a CO2 fertilization effect. I guess what I would say is that over the next 40 years, we need to roughly double global food production in order to keep up with demand. And so simply saying we're going to increase intake is somewhat uh, optimistic, given the challenges of even maintaining caloric intake over the next 40 years. And the other thing I would say is that if you and I were to simply start increasing our intake of food by 5 or 10% in order to offset the reductions in nutrients, we would both be morbidly obese in a matter of months. And so we can't simply eat more food in order to maintain the same nutrient intake. So it would seem that uh, we're set to have this 550 parts per million of CO2 in the next 40 years, at the same time that we're expected to see world population go up from our 7 billion to 9 billion, and the warmer planet likely to have less arable land. How much does this confluence of, of rather difficult things concern you? Well, I think it is obviously deeply concerning. We are essentially transforming all the natural systems on the planet in a way that is both pervasive and accelerating. And that transformation will lead to a host of surprises. And it's very difficult to anticipate how these environmental changes will sort of ripple through ecological systems and ultimately impact our own health and well-being. And all we can really say with certainty is that uh, we'll be surprised uh, many times in the future. And to me, this research is an example of one of those surprises. Sam Myers is a physician, a research scientist in the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Dr. Myers. Thanks so much for your interest.
Well, maybe concern about the looming climate crisis has you planning to go solar at your home or business. But even if you do, come the evening, you'll have to buy electricity or use very expensive batteries to keep the lights on. Utilities with large-scale solar and wind farms also have to manage these intermittent power sources. And much of power from the always-on nuclear and coal plants goes to waste at night because demand is low and it's too expensive to store the energy. But some Harvard researchers have made a major breakthrough in developing cheap batteries that could store massive amounts of electricity. Michael Aziz of Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences is one of the project leaders, and he came into the studio. Professor Aziz, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, your team has created what's called this organic megaflow battery. But before you tell us what that means, first of all, just outline what are the problems for conventional batteries for renewable energy sources? Sure. The two most important measures of the capability of a battery are the amount of energy it can store, and that's measured in kilowatt hours. That's what you pay for in your electric bill, how much energy you use every month, and the rate at which it can deliver that energy out of storage, and that's the power measured in kilowatts. The ratio of energy to power is very different for different applications, and traditional batteries are very limited in the range of that ratio they can come up with. It turns out for storing wind and solar, you need many hours to days, and there's no traditional battery that can do that inexpensively. In other words, the fundamental problem here is that you need batteries that can last for a long, long time, and today's batteries aren't designed to do that. That's right. So your team has created what's called organic megaflow batteries. What exactly does that mean? Organic, is that good for you to eat? Turns out that the molecules we're using are very, very close to a molecule found in rhubarb. The chemicals are in your green vegetables, you eat them every day. The flow battery is a different concept. What is a flow battery? A flow battery is different from a traditional solid electrode battery because it stores the energy outside the battery container itself in storage tanks full of fluids. It's a lot like a fuel cell. In a fuel cell, you store the energy outside the fuel cell itself. For a fuel cell car, it would be hydrogen and air. When you want electricity, you flow those chemicals into the cell, past the electrodes, where they're converted to low-energy chemicals, and they give off the energy in the form of electricity, and you exhaust the low-energy product. But for a flow battery, you can't exhaust the products. You've got to contain them so that when it's time to charge up the battery, you flow those product chemicals back into the cell, you drive in electricity and convert those chemicals back to the original high-energy chemicals that you started with. Now you have a battery. So flow battery... It can be any size that you want. If you store the energy in a tank separate from where the electrodes come together, the bigger the tank, the more energy you could store. That's exactly right. You can design the electrodes to give you the power you need, and then you can get arbitrarily large amounts of energy by just bigger and bigger tanks full of chemicals. And that's potentially a much cheaper way of storing large amounts of energy than stacking up entire banks of solid electrode batteries. So there are a few flow batteries already operating out there uh, at large-scale electric plants, as I understand it. Uh, how correct is that? That's right. There's several different flow battery chemistries that are being developed. The most commercially advanced stores energy in the form of vanadium ions in aqueous solution. And the problem with that is vanadium is a rare and expensive metal. But you don't use vanadium. You use something that well, we find in food. As a matter of fact, 
I noticed that other groups were making progress on designing fuel cells using organics. And so we started looking around for organic molecules that might work well in a flow battery. We noticed this class of molecules in chlorophyll called quinones. When they're in chlorophyll during photosynthesis, they switch back and forth between oxidized and reduced forms over and over and over again without any sign of degradation. And that's exactly the functionality you want in a battery. So we modified them to make them highly soluble in water, put them in a flow battery, and it works. Performance is terrific. After half a year at this, the performance is rivaling that of vanadium. We haven't had a chance to optimize anything yet, so we think that we have a lot of room for improvement ahead of us. So part of your secret sauce is that you're imitating nature. That's right. We find that nature has learned how to do things really well. And in this case, going between oxidized and reduced states over and over again without degrading is something nature figured out how to do in order to make photosynthesis work. So we've adopted that now in a battery. So these quinones are really abundant. You could find it in rhubarb, huh? There's a quinone in rhubarb that is so, so close to the molecules that we actually have in our first quinone flow battery that some people are calling it a rhubarb battery. Right now, what we have comes from crude oil because it's very cheap, and the most important thing is to get storage to be cheap or else it can't be useful. Ultimately, if we can get it out of rhubarb, that would be an extra bonus. What would this look like, uh, say, installed in my basement to support uh, home solar cells? There'd be a power conversion unit that would look like an electrical machine, and it would be hooked up to two storage tanks, one for the positive electrolyte and one for the negative electrolyte. Separating the positive and negative that way is a safety feature of flow batteries that you can't get in solid electrode batteries like lithium-ion. There, the positive and the negative are all mixed together in the same cell. So the two tanks makes this safer? The two tanks make it safer because the chemicals can't all mix together at once and give you a catastrophic discharge like you can get in lithium-ion batteries, for example. And these two tanks would be no bigger than, say, a typical oil tank or something? That's right. For a typical set of solar panels on your rooftop, you'd have two tanks, the total volume of which would be the size of one home heating oil storage tank in your basement. To what extent do you feel your development could really revolutionize our use of solar and wind power? The way I see it, the biggest problem in us getting most of our electricity from the wind and the sun is their intermittency. We need a battery that can safely and cost-effectively store large amounts of electrical energy. And this has a fighting chance of being able to do that. Michael Aziz is Professor of Materials and Energy Technologies at Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thanks so much for coming by. It's been my pleasure. Coming up, listening in on squishy creatures in the ocean. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Think sushi, and you're likely to picture a dark red slice of tuna on gleaming white rice. A savory choice for you, maybe, but probably not for the ocean. Bluefin tuna, wild freshwater eel, and other sushi ingredients are in steep decline as more and more people develop a taste for this cuisine. Some see a possibility 
and a necessity for the ancient tradition of sushi to evolve and become more sustainable. One of these people is restaurant owner and sushi chef Bun Lai. Earlier this year, Living on Earth's Annie Sneed went along to learn and taste more. Chef Bun Lai and his team are at the New England Aquarium in Boston. They peel tin foil from giant platters, revealing hundreds of pieces of sushi that range in color from neon green to fiery red. Tonight, Chef Bun is delivering a lecture on sustainable sushi and tasty tidbits to illustrate it. Tonight, uh, I brought five different types of rolls, two vegetable rolls. Uh, we've got a catfish over here with uh, okra and African spices, squid, squid ink, and broccoli mussels from New Zealand. Uh, broccoli, roasted garlic, and Chinese black bean. Sweet potato with kudzu dust and fire ants. Of course, Bun isn't really serving kudzu dust and fire ants, but eating invasive species is part of his message. Thirty years ago, Bun's mother started her sushi restaurant Mia's in New Haven, Connecticut. As a teenager, Bun joined his mother in the restaurant kitchen. Back in the day, it was a traditional uh, sushi restaurant, and we served all the types of seafood uh, that are popular today. Chef Bun still works with his mother, but the menus changed. The reason we stopped serving tuna, shrimp, and a slew of other popular uh, sushi ingredients that uh, everyone expects today is to be able to show people and to challenge ourselves to see if we can thrive as a business without using those ingredients uh, that are so incredibly destructive on so many different levels. Mia's menu now features invasive species, such as lionfish and shore crabs, and eight pages of vegetarian sushi. And Bun connects with scientists and organizations like the New England Aquarium to deliver sustainable food. Tonight is all about making those connections between the ocean and what you're going to have on your plates later. So please join me in welcoming Bun Lai. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Tonight at the aquarium, about 50 people, grandfathers, college students, even toddlers, have come for Bun and his innovative sushi. Bun's dressed in jeans and a black shirt. He's in his early 40s and doesn't look the stern sushi master. He slips in jokes in a deadpan tone. If you don't pay attention, you'll miss his humor. The first thing that you should try is uh, the Asian shore crab. And uh, you just kind of eat it with your fingers. It's all finger food here, and, and hopefully it doesn't bite your tongue. If it does, it's never broken skin, I'll assure you. <laughs> His audience obediently picks up the little crabs and starts chewing. Certainly unusual. Yeah, it was tasty. They try it all, from mussels to sweet potatoes. This is the Kiss the Smiling Piggy vegetarian sweet potato roll. After the lecture, people stick around to talk with Bun and to score a few more pieces of sushi. The sushi was absolutely delicious, and I was really excited to hear Bun talk. He's a, really an inspiration. I'm a high school student who's really interested in sustainable seafood and following that in college. So it was, it's, it's really great to have people, like role models like Bun. The lecture was, was very fun. This was the first time I've actually tried sushi. I've never been very excited about it. And uh, I would say, you know, it was interesting. All right, do you think you'll eat sushi again? Probably not. The kids were probably least intimidated by Bun's strange ingredients. Crabs, you can just eat like popcorn, they're really crunchy and good. And the message of eating invasive species hit home. Oh, I thought it was amazing, this thought of why don't we eat up what we don't want invading. I have to say, I never thought of it that way before. I have extra plates 
eat any? Bun knows his unusual version of this very popular cuisine isn't for everyone. Throughout my career, it's been a situation where uh, often people walk out because uh, we hadn't been carrying tuna or shrimp or freshwater eel, you know, the most popular uh, sushi ingredients. So if they don't think outside the box, they're, they're not going to think uh, that it's sushi. But uh, food has been evolving since the beginning of time. In the origins of sushi, when it first started out thousands of years ago, most of the popular ingredients that we eat today and think as sushi uh, weren't considered ingredients for sushi anyway. Bun and a handful of other sushi masters are helping that evolution along. He hopes that people leave his lecture not only with a full stomach, but also determined to eat only sustainable sushi. For Living on Earth, I'm Annie Sneed. There are nowhere near as many of the huge, magnificent bluefin tuna as there used to be off the shores of America, but perhaps rules proposed by the National Marine Fisheries Service may help their population recover. For an assessment, we called up Carl Safina. He's president of the Blue Ocean Institute, and he's both a fisherman and a strong voice for conservation. Carl, welcome back to Living on Earth. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Let's go to the basics here. Why, why are bluefin tuna in such a steep population decline right now? Well, it's not clear that they're in a steep decline right now, but they're in a big hole. They sort of have fallen and they can't get up. In the 1960s, boats from Japan went into their breeding grounds in the Gulf of Mexico, and they caught an incredible amount of bluefin tuna there while they were trying to breed. After that, Other boats caught the babies for canning. So you had the Japanese taking the breeders. You had the canners taking the babies. Then in the 70s and the 80s, Americans got into the sushi business. And the population has never recovered from the hole that it went into. So talk to me about this plan by the National Marine Fisheries to protect the bluefin tuna. The idea is to try to have fewer of these bluefin tuna killed on their spawning grounds while they are spawning. People are fishing in there with long lines, which are a long fishing line, about 25 miles long. It has hundreds of baited hooks. They are allowed to keep a couple of bluefin tuna and other things that they catch. And so they, they continue to have incentive to be fishing in the breeding area, catching these giant tuna, which can weigh 1,000 pounds or more, And uh, keep a couple, they're extremely lucrative, but they kill others in the process and they discard them because they're not allowed to keep them. This is a proposal that attempts to improve on the situation. 25 miles of long line, what other fish are they catching? They catch a lot of things they're not intending to catch, including marlin and sailfish, which uh, they cannot sell. That's supposed to be to protect them, but a lot of them, you know, get killed anyway. So those populations of some of those marlin uh, are in very, very bad shape. They catch a lot of sharks. They catch sea turtles. In some places, they catch a lot of seabirds. And uh, they're very bad at targeting things well. Even if they're fishing for something like, let's say, swordfish, They can catch a lot of juvenile swordfish that are too small to sell that come up dead. Well, how would these new regulations from the National Marine Fisheries Service help? They would let them fish there in a smaller area for a shorter amount of the season. So you might say that's an improvement or you might say it doesn't really go far enough. In your view? Not far enough. Because? Well, because these fish have been in a deep hole for many decades, and uh, I don't think that you should be fishing 
for a deeply depleted fish while it is trying to reproduce. I think that if any place should be a protection zone, where the survivors have managed to finally get themselves to in order to spawn is a place that they should be just spawning and not dying. How do you police something like this? You can police it on the fishing ground, which is very, very difficult to do, or you can police it at the dock. But there's incentive to pass fish among boats. There's incentive to hide fish. There will be people who probably try to do some cheating. The National Marine Fishery Service says that they'll have observers and they'll even have cameras on these boats. How how effective might that be? I think in the U.S., It's probably pretty effective. The observers and the cameras are for two reasons. One is because there can be incentive to try to bribe the observers. uh, And the other is because observers cannot stay awake 24 hours a day or be looking in all directions at once. What are the different sides of this argument? What about the folks that say this goes too far? There are people who say there are plenty of bluefin tuna. There are people who say that they're recovering well There are people who say a lot of things, and I think that all of those things are partly true. But if you compare the number of fish to the number of fish there are supposed to be, it's vastly fewer than it was when I was a child. And if we could get it back, which could happen in a reasonable amount of time, then you could actually catch a lot more of them more sustainably from a population that is much bigger and recovered from the small population that exists now. So what would be the ideal plan for you to regulate uh, the bluefin tuna? In the perfect world, we would not catch these fish at all for about five years. We would just give them a break and let the young ones grow up, let the big ones spawn, and let the good times roll, and then reassess it and see if we want to continue to resume fishing at that point and how many we could take. If consumers are concerned about this, what should they do? Uh, There are a couple of different levels at which consumers could act on their concern. One is not eating any bluefin tuna at all. The other thing is to try not to eat animals that are caught with longline fishing gear. And um, there are a couple of groups, my group, Blue Ocean Institute, and the Monterey Bay Aquarium put out guides to sustainably caught fish that can help you try to figure out what fish are caught with uh, relatively clean, relatively uh, sustainable techniques from better managed fisheries. Carl Safina is the founder of the Blue Ocean Institute. Thanks for joining me today. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you. Oceans cover 70% of the planet, and though we've traveled over them for millennia and dived deep under them for over a century, they still hold many secrets. Among those mysteries are many of the strange creatures beneath the waves, and marine biologists are getting a new understanding of the role that sound plays for some of them. And as the sounds we humans create in the seas increase, deepening that understanding becomes more urgent. Reporter Jennifer Jarrett visited the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and has our report. Hey, so Aaron, are you ready? On the video I'm watching at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution... Four scientists are clustered toward the front of a 27-foot Boston whaler. One guy is hanging over the water off a skinny platform at the front of the boat. He's got an ankle wrapped around the rail to keep from falling in. He's very gingerly trying to attach an acoustic monitoring tag, or a D-tag, to a dolphin. Aaron Mooney is the team leader for this operation. 
I really love working with um, that dolphin or that squid. I really like kind of being able to work with and, and address an animal that I can see and hold and touch and look at. Aaron Mooney is a marine biologist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He specializes in sensory ecology and bioacoustics. This means he studies the role that sound plays for animals in the ocean. The dolphins he studies are well-known sound specialists. They use sonar, or echolocation, to map their underwater world. To put it in human terms, they basically see with sound. And dolphins also use sound to communicate. This blue whale uses sound to communicate too. And it's possible blue whales are calling to each other across entire oceans, over hundreds or even thousands of miles. Of course, humans make sounds in the ocean, too. And some of those sounds, like boat traffic and offshore industrial activity, are making the ocean a lot noisier. So one of the things that are concerning us about marine mammals these days is noise pollution. That's Franz Jensen, another bioacoustics researcher at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. We're putting out a lot of noise into the ocean. As Jensen's DTAG recordings reveal. So the sequence I'm going to play here is from a bottlenose dolphin instrumented with another DTAG. You'll hear the animal swimming around and then you'll hear a loud vessel passing close by. And this is not just a one-time occurrence. This is in a very busy area with respect to recreational vessel traffic. So now you can hear the vessel approaching. So as you can hear, this is quite an increase in noise levels and in noise that actually stretches quite far up into echolocation frequencies. So this can be pretty important for the animals. Jensen says that a noise like that could interfere with a dolphin's ability to communicate, to find food, or to avoid predators. There's a growing body of evidence that noise affects both the behavior and the physiology of dolphins. Much of the work that's been done in marine bioacoustics has focused on these animals. As Aaron Mooney says, They're sort of the laboratory mouse of the marine mammal world. What's new is what scientists are learning about the role of sound for other, more unusual sea creatures, like the squid. Back around 2008, Aaron Mooney made a discovery. Not only do squid detect sound, but they do so in a pretty wild way. The best way to kind of think about how squid detect sound is to kind of think about fruit in jello. You heard that right. Fruit in jello. So sort of um, that Midwest delicacy where, you know, you kind of make your salad with your fruit in the jello, where the squid being the fruit and the jello being the water column. And how squid detects sound is that the, essentially the sound wave literally vibrates them or moves them back and forth. So squid can feel themselves getting physically jostled by the sound wave. Essentially, they hear with their whole bodies. But squid aren't necessarily using sound to talk to each other. Instead, they might be using sound in some unexpected ways. It's a really new idea, but Mooney is beginning to think that young squid, along with other larval invertebrates, might use sound to navigate, that they cue in to the ambient sounds around suitable habitats, 
sounds made by waves, snapping shrimp, or other animals that are common in those habitats. And Mooney's latest research suggests that adult squid might rely on sound for different information to alert them that predators are nearby. The thing about working with squid are that there's a range of responses that they can ink, they can change color, and they can jet, meaning they can swim away really fast. And when we play a a really abrupt, like, predator-type sound, they do all three. They ink in the water, they swim away really fast, and they're doing color changes at the same time. Is this something that has surprised you? It's... It's definitely sort of surprising, I feel like, to a lot of the, the marine community. The fact that we're seeing maybe some differences between adults and young is pretty neat. And um, the fact that we, you know, there's a key way that these guys are interacting with the environment and other animals that we didn't know about, that's pretty awesome, pretty astounding. Mooney doesn't know yet whether squid are affected by human-created noise. That's one of his next projects. And he's looking at the relationship between sound and human activity in the ocean in other ways, too. His team is putting recorders in the ocean to monitor acoustics at the site of America's first proposed offshore wind farm in Nantucket Sound. They're listening for what's out there, both before and after the wind turbines go in. And we want to know how those different patterns change. How often does the animal habitat use of the area change, and how often, or how does the human habitat um, use change as well? It's actually kind of an interesting place because it's relatively quiet. So. Um, you know, it might be a really great place to, to put a wind farm. We don't know quite what to think about it yet. Incorporating sound monitoring into offshore environmental planning is a pretty new approach. It's another way science can help people understand what's at stake with increasing human activity in the ocean, to start asking questions about what we should and shouldn't do. Franz Jensen puts it this way. From a policy perspective, I think it's very important to strike a balance between being conservative and commercial development, and we need to listen to what we can actually say with our data. Of course, there's going to be some impacts if if you're putting out a water turbine or a wind turbine or doing offshore construction. What we really need to find out as researchers is how big those impacts are and whether, for that sake, they're worth the cost. As humans put more pressure on ocean habitats and the creatures that live there, bioacoustics and the role of sound will have more to tell us. For now, Jensen and Mooney plan to keep listening. In Woods Hole, Massachusetts, I'm Jennifer Jarrett. Coming up, the length and depth some sea creatures go to survive and thrive. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Now let's head to the sun-soaked beaches of Hawaii for today's Bird Note. Here's Mary McCann. 
tropic bird. The name alone evokes a warm breeze and a place where green islands dot a shimmering blue ocean. Picture a streamlined, sparkling white seabird with a red spear of a bill and luxuriantly long tail streamers. With the strong, direct flight of a falcon, a tropic bird can catch a flying fish on the wing or plunge like an arrow into the sea and, with its serrated bill, capture a squid. Birds of such elegant natural design seem creatures of myth, and in fact, their scientific name links directly to Greek mythology, as tropic birds belong to the genus Phaeton. Phaeton, the son of Apollo, hurtled through the sky in the chariot of the sun, only to plunge into the river Eridanus. Myth, sun, and sea. There's that warm ocean breeze again. Maybe it's time for a trip to Hawaii. Visit the island of Kauai, and you can easily see one of these near-mythical birds, its glistening white form floating in the air just beyond a sea cliff's edge. Tropic birds have ranged through most of the tropical latitudes of the world's oceans for 60 million years. I'm Mary McCann. And you can see images of these glorious birds at our website, loe.org. They say that a period at the end of a sentence represents how much or how little we know about the oceans. This underwater universe seems alien to most of us, but it represents the essence of life on this planet. In an engaging recent book called The Extreme Life of the Sea, biologist Steve Palumbi and his novelist son Tony deepen our understanding of how strange sea life has managed to survive against all odds. Joining us is half of the pair of authors, Steve Palumbi, a professor of marine biology at Stanford University. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hey, Steve. Pleasure to be here. Why did you write this book? Why now? Well, the real reason is that we're trying an experiment. Can you take the narrative style and approach that a novelist would use and combine it with what a scientist would do and then come up with an environmental narrative that is more engaging than we're used to? It's all sort of in a small way described by a simple phrase that you don't really care about the plot until you care about the characters. And so we wanted to write a book that made you care about the characters. Now, you write about the extreme life of the sea, the oldest, the hottest, the shallowest, to name a few. Uh, why did you choose this approach? Because it was a way of getting people's attention to the really sort of amazing things that these critters do. Organisms in the sea live in some of the hottest places. They live in some of the coldest places. And how they do that is something that marine scientists have paid a lot of attention to. So it was really a way to make it more engaging, more fun, and uh, to let us move incredibly between different kinds of organisms all in the same chapter. Now, which of these extremes did you particularly like, and why? You know, I was most surprised by all the information that we got about the oldest creatures in the sea. And the oldest are? Well, the oldest uh, by far is that 
a set of deep water corals off the coast of Hawaii. Black corals, they live in about a thousand feet of water. It's dark, it's steady currents, it's very, very common, steady environment. And those corals are clocked, the oldest one that we know about, at 4,200 years old. That's old. That's old. I mean, these corals were alive before some of the pyramids were started. Speaking of age, you had one extreme that you called immortal. That's an amazing jellyfish called Turritopsis, and it has the remarkable ability to actually age in reverse. So when the environment is bad, this animal can essentially go from its adult body form back, 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 back to its larval form, and then uh, start all over again. It's reborn, huh? It's reborn. It's called transdifferentiation. It's the only critter uh, known to be able to do that. Hmm. wonder if I could package that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's there's lots of movies about when you you know you're all of a sudden wake up and you find you're back in high school. And so, do you really want to do that, Steve? Oh no, I don't <laughs> yeah. need to go back there. Think about it. <laughs> Tell me about your favorite from the deep, deep, deep. One is this an amazing critter called the uh, stoplight loose jaw, like. Typical deep sea fish, it's got fangs and huge jaws and amazingly sharp teeth. It can actually eat a fish bigger than itself. The deep sea is extreme in that it's dark, and there's also not much food. There's bioluminescence, flashes of blue and green that are down there. And if you use your light as sort of a searchlight to find something that everybody else can see you too and come after you. So the stoplight loose jaw fixes that problem by cheating. It has two searchlights that beam out from under its eyes, and they're not the typical blue-green of bioluminescence. Those searchlights are red, and they've also changed their eyes so that they can see red. So the only fish down there that sees red and then produces red light, so they can prowl around with these searchlights on. Nobody else can see them, but they can see their prey. So a predator with night vision. A predator with night vision goggles, essentially, yeah. So, you know, imagine you're on some laser tag arena and you're the only one that can actually see anybody else. Describe the whale fall and why these are important. The whale fall is an amazing exception to the generalization that the deep sea has not got much in the way of food. When a whale dies, it often dies in the middle of the ocean in deep water, and and it falls down to the bottom of the sea with a sort of flump that dumps tons of meat and bones and gristle all at once. It's an incredible instant oasis of food. And from all around, uh, critters come immediately to start feeding on it, and they disassemble the whole skeleton uh, in just a matter of weeks. But it goes beyond that because then a set of predators comes in to eat the critters that are eating the whale. And they slowly all form this community, short-lived community, until most of the whale is gone. And then you have the bones left scattered around the bottom. But the bones of a whale are actually enormously valuable for food. They're full of oil. So another set of critters comes and lands on those bones and starts feeding on those. Finally, all you're left with is just a thin dusting of the, the remains of an entire whale and all its bones on the bottom of the seafloor. Now, there's some pretty interesting sex lives in the sea. Tell me a little bit about these. 
it turns out that one of the most uh, extreme things about marine critters is is their family lives. You know, for example, uh, another deep sea example is that uh, anglerfish, made popular in uh, the Finding Nemo movies, have uh, a remarkable lure that attracts prey to them. And scientists studied them for a century or more, always bemoaning the fact they could only find females. And then a parasitologist was working on them, looking at the parasites that these females always seem to have hanging off them, and discovered that those were the males. They were parasitic males attached to the females and living only with them, depending totally on the females for for everything. After they bite the female, their jaws dissolve, and then their brains dissolve, and then their guts dissolve, and then their blood systems mesh with the females. And all they are, at the end, is just a testis that's there to fertilize the female's eggs uh, when she's ready. I thought you weren't going to talk about human relationships here. Well, we give these uh, book talks. The women are usually laughing. The men are are somewhat bemused. And then by the end, uh, the men are all horrified. One of the most fascinating parts about your book is how you tell the story of evolution through microbes in the ocean. What made you decide to do that? Microbes are the smallest critters in the ocean, but they are by far the most numerous. And you can't understand the life of the ocean without including them. They are, in fact, the the organisms that determine that the ocean is, in fact, livable. You, you might be referring for about the evolutionary part to a sort of scary and shivering, chilling type of process that biologists have called kill the winner. And, and here's the way it goes, that microbes in the sea, you'd think, well, the best one would take over, the one that could grow the fastest in the most places. Uh, but that doesn't happen. The, the microbes in the sea are incredibly diverse, and it boils down probably to the enemies of these microbes, and those are viruses. And any microbe that gets good enough and big enough and abundant enough uh, to maybe take over the ocean is also a target for these viruses that evolve to attack them specifically. So the viruses are constantly killing the winner of the competitive race among microbes in the ocean. And by doing that, they're keeping the ocean in balance and highly diverse. Now, how does the human consumption of seafood affect the marine ecosystem and and the balance of bacteria? You know, Steve, the real problem is that this huge ocean with all these creatures in it is not big enough that is immune to the kinds of changes that we can we can make on it. And in particular, fishing and overfishing uh, has the effect of breaking the food chains that the ocean normally has. And you can think of a food chain as taking the smallest little critters and uh, then their food for the next larger ones and their food for the next larger ones up. And and so the food energy in the ocean or or any ecosystem really uh, moves from the smallest critters up through the bigger and bigger and bigger ones. But when we fish, especially fish heavily, we break the food chain. We end up essentially allowing the food energy to clump up at parts of the food chain that, that it doesn't usually. So we get big, huge blooms of jellyfish, for example, and with the ocean out of balance by us overfishing. Talk to us about uh, how climate change is affecting the life of the sea. So climate change is a pervasive, growing, and huge problem. It's, of course, making the sea level rise. 
It's also making the oceans warmer, it's making them more acidic and stormier. And all these things mean that uh, how we interact with the ocean is getting harder and harder. And a lot of the organisms that we might depend on to grow barriers, uh, natural living seawalls, for example, around our coasts, are succumbing to the extra heat and the, the acidification. And these problems are visible now, and they're projected to grow into the future. If we stopped the process by which climate change is happening, as we, we stop carbon emissions, it's still going to take 50 years or so for the oceans to absorb what we've already put into the atmosphere and begin to get better. So it's like you're booming along in a speeding car and all of a sudden you see the red brake lights in front of you and you think, okay, we've got to stop, but there's a stopping distance. You can't stop immediately. You can't stop a speeding car right on a dime. It takes a while. And that stopping distance for climate change is about 50 years. So the biggest problem is that we're just now beginning to see the red lights in front of us. And even if we all decide, okay, we're going to put the brakes on now, which we have not yet decided, but if we did, we'd still have 50 years of stopping distance before things got better. Steve, what do you hope readers will take away from your book? We wrote the book to give readers a sense of guiltless wonder about how wonderful the life of the ocean is and and that these critters out there are not just seafood. They live in all the corners of the ocean. They can live and thrive in amazing places with amazing abilities and that they add to the wonder of our planet. It's really a book that's meant to entertain people. It's meant to, to give them a sense of, wow, I never knew that. Steve Palumbi is a marine biologist at Stanford University and co-author of The Extreme Life of the Sea. Thanks so much for taking this time today, Steve. Hey, Steve. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Next time on Living on Earth, Scots are about to vote on independence from the UK and debating if their prosperity rests entirely on offshore oil and gas reserves. We have alternative resources here. We've started to tap into them. We think that's the future that Scotland should be taking, not continuing to take every last drop of oil out the North Sea. Scotland the Brave and Green. That's next time on Living on Earth. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, Abby Nighthill, Jennifer Marquis, and Olivia Powers all helped to make our show. We also had help this week from Rosa Kirsten-Smith. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, 
makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International